Genesis 32, 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon, <clears throat> excuse me, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this key development in the unfolding of your great salvation as Jacob comes face to face and hand to hand with you. Help us to see from this passage that the greatest strength we can have is for us to become weak in ourselves and entrust ourselves to your blessing us in all that you are and all that you have done for us in Jesus. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen. I don't know about what your dad was like, but I'm sure many dads like mine would let us win at certain games. Just let us win, playing checkers, whatever. So you, it's, it's really important because we were designed for glory. And it's really important to get that feeling of those longings for glory that we have. But what if you need more than just the feeling of winning in order to really win? What if you actually need to win? Like really and truly Knox Chamlin was my New Testament professor and he used this illustration to kind of give what in a very rudimentary way is going on in this passage but is more developed in the New Testament in this doctrine we call union with Christ. That by faith, we are united to Christ and that everything that is his is ours. Just by faith alone. And he used this illustration. It's not perfect, but it gives you the idea. Now this is, I haven't followed baseball in forever, so he used Tom Glavin as a pitcher. If you know baseball, he was a great pitcher, I think, for the Braves at one time, if I'm not mistaken. I may be wrong about that. 
but Knox Chamlin admired Tom Glavin's pitching. And he said, think of yourself as a 10-year-old and you're watching Tom Glavin pitch and you're in Little League and you say, I'm going to pitch just like Tom Glavin. And you get out there and you work hard and you throw hard and you, you do your best. Is that 10-year-old ever going to be Tom Glavin as a 10-year-old? No. He's not going to be able to throw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball at major league distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate. He can't. He does not have the power. He said, then Knox Chamlin said, but what if somehow all of Tom Glavin's strength, know-how, or whatever could be poured into that 10-year-old? Could he then pitch like Tom Glavin? And the answer is yes, he could. And it's like that with God. He both lets us win and he also equips us to win through what another professor of mine David Jessel used to say, wrestling. You gotta wrestle with it, he said, instead of wrestle. We gotta wrestle with our lives. I like the sound of that better. It kind of feels more gritty, like you're down into it, right? Because God doesn't want to only impute grace to you to give you credit of Christ's righteousness for your own. He also wants to impart a power for righteous living like Christ to you. A living faith for everyday life. And that's why the main idea of this passage is that God's presence causes us to wrestle or wrestle with him and win. Now, how does God, how does the Lord prepare his covenant people for conflict? Because that's the scene here, right? We've gone, taken a long time to get through one night. Several weeks, right? But the scene here is Jacob has just left conflict with, with Laban. And he was sent there because there was potential conflict with his brother Esau because Esau vowed to kill him because Jacob stole his birthright and his blessing from his father. In a sense, the younger has become more powerful in the family than the older, right? They're twins, but he, he was born second. And that's what God said, the older shall serve the younger. But now he's running right back into conflict, coming from Laban, his father-in-law, now running into conflict with Esau, his brother, because Esau is on the other side. And he just found out that Esau has 400 men with him and he's coming to meet Jacob. And Jacob is sort of shaking and quaking at this point. So how does the Lord prepare his covenant people for conflict? Through intervening, he prepares us to win with pressing on faith, prevailing faith, and persevering faith. First of all, he intervenes to prepare us to win with pressing on faith. And the takeaway from this is dogged determination to trust in God against all odds. In verse 22, we see that at the end of this, uh, uh, of this uh, preparation time that we looked at last week. There is Jacob, and he arises the, just after that. Look at what it says in verse 22. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, female servants, 11 children, crossed the ford Jabbok. So after being honest to God in prayer in verses 9 through 12 and prepping for this coming meeting with with uh, 
Esau as a response in verses 13 through 21. He wastes no time to keep going, keep prepping, keep moving. And so in, in uh, verse 23, it says, he took and he sent. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And what Jacob is doing here is he's leaving it in God's hands. He's left alone, leaving it in God's hands. And there's a difference between leaving something in God's hands and the old saying, let go and let God. Let go and let God many times. It can be interpreted differently, but many times it kind of means, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to do anything. God's got to take care of this. And sometimes we do get to that desperate situation. It's not that we never get to those. But God doesn't expect us to just kind of pray to him and just kind of sit there. We leave it in God's hands because we can't control everything. We don't know everything. God doesn't guarantee absolute safety and and a no-risk life. Look at Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Paul puts it like this. First of all, his mission statement of his ministry, I believe, in 1, 28. Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that's what Jacob is actually going through right now. He's going through a process to make him more mature in Christ. But then look at what Paul says after this. How does he execute this mission? He says, for this I toil. Who is the subject and what is the verb? The subject is Paul. What does he do? He toils. He works. He puts forth effort. He strains. And look how he puts it. Struggling, I feel the struggle, with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. What does that mean? In the midst of the wrestling with life, God is putting power into you as you walk that out and work that out by faith. And then he takes initiative in the leadership of his family. Look at Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Look at what it says. The Lord builds the house, but there's still labor to be done. You can work in faith. You can pray and work. And this doesn't mean that God accepts you on the basis of those works. Rather, it's the opposite. You are already accepted based on Christ's works so that you can work. You're free to become all that God has made you to be. That's what part of salvation is. Never perfect in this life, but still nonetheless, we get taste and taste and taste and more taste of it until one day we will see it fully in glory. So, This leaves us with a dogged determination to trust in God against all odds. And God's presence in our lives means he's not going to come in and the Holy Spirit live inside of us and go to sleep. He's going to be knocking around in there. Say, hey, deal with this. Deal with this. Deal with this. Shaping our character after the image of Christ. So how does the Lord prepare his covenant people, especially he shapes us in the midst of conflict. So how does he prepare us? for conflict. He intervenes, preparing us to win with pressing on faith, but also prevailing faith. The takeaway from this is dogged determination to cling to God against all odds. First of all, we see in verse 24 that Jacob was left alone. He was left alone in the dark. 
And then boom, this is a very strange passage, isn't it? This man shows up and they begin wrestling. What? I mean, if it wasn't so churchy, you know, for us, if you're just reading it, pretend like you've never read this before in your life and you're just reading along the story. And all of a sudden this band just shows up and they just begin wrestling. For what? We don't know. Right? But this man shows up. What is this wrestling about? Well, Jesus puts it to Peter like this on the night uh, near the time where he was betrayed. Look at what Jesus says to Peter, uh, Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know, Peter comes up wanting in the sifting, don't you? He denies Christ three times. But look at what Christ says. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that your faith may not fail. So even when you do fail, your faith doesn't fail, Peter. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's very much what he said to him in his last words to Peter there in John 21. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. He is equipping Peter out of failure to have victory. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. But don't lose faith, Peter, because I've got you. That's what this wrestling's about. And so Jacob gets to win. He just gets to win. I mean, he beats God in wrestling. How many of us can claim that? When the man saw, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail, this is the angel of the Lord. Some people think, I tend to think, although I wouldn't be absolutely certain about it, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ that he is wrestling with. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, Jacob won the wrestling match. Now, obviously, Christ let him win, right? But not in the sense of like a dad with a kid, just kind of let him have the feeling. He really wants Jacob to continue wrestling and getting it in him like Tom Glavin coming into a 10-year-old. Hebrews 12, I mean, I'm sorry, not Hebrews. Hosea 12, verses three through six actually reflects on this. It says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, meaning Jacob, and in his manhood, he strove with God, referring to this very passage. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, that's back in Genesis 28, with the ladder. And there God spoke, not just with Jacob, look at what it says. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So, by, so you, by the help of your God, return and hold fast. Now, get that language there. Hold fast. What is Jacob doing? He would not let God go until he was blessed by him. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. That's what wrestling is about. The outcome is not yet totally determined. You wait so God, and so God actually gets glory when he loses for our sake. 
Look at the end of verse 25. He touched his hip socket and Jacob hit, was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. He just touched his hip socket. So he lost, but he wants Jacob, he's got to give Jacob a memorial that's going to last him his life. Now, this whole process of weakening, of becoming weak in ourselves, this side of heaven, because this side of heaven, nothing is ever going to be made right. Okay? This whole process of weakening is just the way it works. Look at Isaiah 53, predicting Christ's death. This is key to our Messiah's identity. He is the anointed king warrior, and look at what happened to him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, in other words, the taking on of the wrath of God, the anger, the righteous anger of God against us for our sin. Christ took that, that brought us peace. Not the peace that's the warm, fuzzy feeling inside, the literal peace between us and God that we need because our biggest enemy, it ain't Satan, it ain't our sin, it's God himself. Except that God would show his grace and love for us from before all the foundation of the world and send Christ to take care of his own justice and his righteous wrath against us. Otherwise, that death on the cross means nothing, people. If, if, if Christ dying on the cross for my sins does not mean that God absorbed, or that Christ absorbed the anger of God against me for my sin, then I don't know what in the world it means. It's just a nice example, but for what? In history, some man died on a cross? Who cares? Unless it's eternity on the line for me, which it is. So it's key to his identity. So if he's my master and my Lord, then it's key to our identity. Even Jesus tells us this right up front. We follow his pattern, not, not for the same things. Our, our taking up our cross doesn't mean the same thing as Christ taking up our cross, his cross. But still, nonetheless, it's the same pattern. Look at Luke 9. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is wrestling, people. Wrestling daily. For, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his own soul, as some other translations put it. Christ is getting you to put it on the scales, folks. What is, what is, what is it worth to you? And it's worth getting in there and getting our hip touched and put out a socket. Because, see, Jesus helps us get there by weakening us. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. You see, Paul saw this too. He knows that we have to be consciously clinging, but the only way we're gonna cling is if we go through some suffering. Now, the suffering is not God hating you. It's actually the opposite. Because in this fallen world, there's no other way to do it. There's no other way. We go through suffering like Jacob 
to learn. And God's not going to let us go. But he wants us to hang and to cling to him just like Jacob. I won't let you go until you bless me. Knowing, look, Jacob knows he's messed up. And he is. He's one of the most messy people in, in the whole scripture. But when it came right down to it, when it came right down to the core of the ultimate issues of his life, I ain't letting go. I ain't letting go until you bless me. Does that describe our walk with God? There's got to be a conscious clinging with the Lord's help. Look at how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that the revelations he got from Christ, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. God sent a messenger from Satan to Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. It's really easy to become conceited, especially preachers. Man, we got to watch it. Because I have to stand up here and tell you the very word of God. And I have to be under it myself. It's kind of insane, really, from a human perspective. But from God's perspective, there's always something he does. He touched the hip socket. He put it out of joint as he wrestled with him. It's in the wrestling when we suffer Look at what Paul says in verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Lord, please. We don't know what this thorn is, by the way. We have no idea. A lot of theories, I'm not even go into them. We just gotta know that something was very painful for Paul. And he, and he says it came directly from Satan because God dispatched. Remember, Luther said that Satan was God's devil. Satan's not all powerful. He's not the opposite of God in power. God controls every step he takes. So he, God uses Satan for his own ends, for his own glory. So three times he pleaded with the Lord, please take this away, basically. The man says to Jacob, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Three times pleading, the idea here is the desperation, the need. Paul actually was harder headed than Jacob here, if you look at this passage more closely. That's what he's saying. What does it say in verse nine? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For, get this, my power is made perfect in weakness. When you are weak, God's power is made perfect in your life. That's what Jacob's having to learn here. So Paul goes on and, and so, and we see in verse 27, the man asked Jacob, uh, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Paul has to get to his name, weakness. That's you or my name, weakness. Jacob means deceiver. So fill in the blank with whatever because Jacob did live that out, Right? So Paul says, look, I ain't got nothing to boast in. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And what is that power? It is the power of Christ saying, you are strong in me. 
That's what that verse in Philippians means. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean that Christ gives you power to do whatever you want to do. It means that you're saying, all my power is from you. I'm named by your power. So verse 28 of our passage. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Look at that. God, Christ is saying to Jacob, you have won. Wow. Can you imagine the confidence boost? But I'm such, Lord, I am so, I just default to deception all the time. Sometimes it's, it's okay. You can get wisdom from that if you apply it correctly. But Jacob, that's not who you are. Believe it or not, inside you I am working. And I will take your weakness and I will make it your strength because I am your strength. Dogged determination to cling to God against all odds. That's what this is about. Prevailing faith. So God's presence, when he comes into our lives by the Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done, he causes us to wrestle with him and to win with him. How does the Lord prepare his covenant people for conflict? He intervenes, preparing us to win with pressing on faith, with prevailing faith, and finally persevering faith, which is a dogged determination to lean into God against all odds. Now, first thing, in this, Jacob gets to know God through this mysterious grace in verse 29. Verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he, he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. Well, that's telling his name. Who else is going to bless? You don't have to tell Jacob his name. In other words, Jacob doesn't get to put him, no pun intended, in his hip pocket and take God out and use him as a talisman to wield any way he wants. Rather, it's the opposite. God's saying, look, I'm holding all the cards here. You just got to trust me. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1.27. To them, meaning God's saints, by the way, saint isn't just a special person. The only reason why they're special is because they're in Christ. And guess what? Every believer in Christ is a saint. Regardless. Paul writes his letters to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Colossae. He means all the believers, not a special class of believers. That's a lie. We are all on level ground as believers far as God is concerned. To them, his saints, God chose to make known. Why did he have to make it known? Well, he had to make it known because he's the one that knew it and no one else did. How great, and what was it he made known? How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Tom Glavin, as it were, in that 10-year-old, the hope of your glory, your winning. So it's a mysterious grace that Jacob encounters and that we encounter in this life with God. But it's also a sobering grace. Look at verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. 
He knew. Man, I was that close to God that I was clinging to him. And I looked up in his face and asked him questions and I didn't die. And I'm a sinner. Do you see how grace is here? It's God's grace. But these, this grace has effects. And he marked God's intervention by changing the name of that place. Peniel, which means the face of God. And Penuel in the next verse is just an alternate spelling. It's the same exact meaning. And the question is, is what marks us now? Well, Paul says in Titus 2 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. We know that, salvation by grace. But what does the mark, what's the mark? Verse 12, training us. Mm, I didn't know I signed up for a training. Is this military? Yeah, it is. It's military. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, I'm glad that that's an ING on that training because I ain't trained totally yet. But that's what we're to be about as Christians. Why? How do we do this? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then he tells us the gospel here. It's all connected. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So he redeems us from all our lawlessness against him and to purify himself a people for his own possession. And how are they marked? Zealous for good works. Zealous for them. So you're getting to, not just getting to know God in that mysterious way, but getting to really know God down in your bones. Like literally with Jacob, his hip was put out of socket. And the sun, verse 31, and the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his limp. Rest of his life, he's gonna know. I gotta desperately cling to him and wrestle through all of these temptations, through all of these things, these trials, and not only him, remember how God said God spoke to us in Hosea at, when he spoke to Jacob? Look at what happened in verse 32. And every generation after him are limping along as well. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel, that, by the way, that's us as well. Don't have time to explain it, but there's a connection. The people of Israel, and doesn't, this is not about our diet, okay? It's about the symbolism here. The people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Every generation was gonna remember that limp, that they are just limping along, clinging to God. In my past work experience, I got to be around various kinds of addiction recovery groups, and they all say, you gotta hit rock bottom before you change, until I heard in one group one day, you don't have to hit rock bottom. You can use our rock bottom there's no need for you to go headlong in all of this to change. And that's what Jacob is saying. You don't have to hit rock bottom like me. Use my story as a cautionary tale. It's not just a tale, it's history. And turn to me. See, Jacob's story is ultimately a hopeful story. It's one of the most encouraging to my fight in faith to gain victory over sin. So what is it in conclusion? Covenant identity is winning through losing. 
There's a book that's come out in the last few years, one of these business books, you know, Leaders Eat Last. It's sort of like that. True leaders make sure that everyone else around them, that they are serving. By the way, that's what leadership is. It's a serving, not serving in the sense of do whatever you want, but serving you to try to plead and, as a pastor, to plead and persuade you and myself as well that we need to change and follow God's word, not our own, not what our family told us year after year, not what anybody else tells us, but what God tells us. There was an illustration of this I saw in a video. Um, it was on leadership and there's a bunch of dogs with a wolf and they're at a frozen lake and there's a little hole in the ice and the wolf's drinking the water and the other dog's trying to get in and he, you know, shoes him away with his snarl. So there's this big St. Bernard just kind of watching all this, assessing everything. And he runs about 30 feet to the other side of the wolf and he just starts pounding on the ice. Boom, boom, boom. And he makes a bigger hole and all the dogs see it and run over there and leave the wolf alone. And the St. Bernard lets all the other dogs drink and then he drinks. See, leadership is what Christ has done for us in this and what Christ has done for Jacob. He assesses the needs of others and he lays down his life. In other words, his desires at the moment so that he can invest energy that he would put into his own desires instead into the people around them to fulfill the needs that they have, the true needs. Those dogs needed water and the St. Bernard assessed it and did it. Christ knew we needed life. He went to the cross and then he gave us a spirit to get us to wrestle with him because he knows we need. Paul, Jesus put it like this, John 10, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, that's victory with Jesus. Not over Jesus, not him over us. But what Jesus wants to do, he wants to not only impute, let us win, give us his righteousness as a gift which we receive by faith. He wants to impart the power of actually living righteously. And all of grace, all of that is, we don't deserve any of this, not at all. Because why? Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what that means. That's what Jacob is finding out right here. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so moved to awe and wonder like Jacob, that you let us win with you as we work out our faith in Christ with fear and trembling, just like Jacob. And just like Jacob, we know that it is you who is at work in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. We love you for taking pleasure in our clinging to you for strength. Please help us to fight the good fight of faith, clinging to Jesus as soldiers of his cross. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen.